Hello and welcome to Canaan Arendt Sound of Play 93. Every Wednesday in Sound of Play, we bring you some of our and your favorite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. Joining me, Ryan Heyman, in Sound of Play 93 is Kanan Rince's Joshua Garrity. Hello there. I was just thinking that the last few Sounds of Play have all been specials and interviews and stuff. It's been a while since <laughs> since we've just been able to kind of kick back, since relax, you've had to settle, settle for me, just boring on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, actually it's been a long time since we've done any kind of podcasting together and so it's a it's yeah. it's a pleasure to hear your voice again. <laughs> Same here. Let's uh let's dive right into the music. We had a, a short little track playing us in. Um but I thought it was a good track to kind of top off the uh the sound of play with because it's called Prelude. It's by Chris Remo. It's from a short little game called 30 Flights of Loving. I guess a short song from a short game, um, proportional to the length of the game. It's probably the longest song that we've ever played, but I'm not going to get into the math on that one. Uh, but the entire game could be played in what, like 10 minutes or something. Yeah. Uh, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's a really wonderful experience. It's almost like, uh, almost like an interactive film, like, um, like the films that people, uh, produce for the VR devices and, and stuff like that. We're kind of getting into that age of like, semi-interactive films that still classify themselves as films. But yeah. this one is a little bit more gamey than that. There are some uh, actual mechanics and most of it's just kind of walking into the next scene. But I, I do think that the um, that the interaction does add something to it is is this one that you're familiar with josh yeah yeah i am um i i really do like um 30 flights of loving you you uh, mm. referenced it being like a um interactive film it, it really reminds me of you know like a silent silent movie film like a mm. lot of it is visual storytelling and kind of quickly cutting to different scenes and and um kind of getting us you know a uh, a broad stroke image of what's happening and kind of leaving. Uh, I mean, not that 
it's left to your interpretation. I don't think it's it's I don't think it's that ambiguous. But um, kind of using visual storytelling and interactivity rather than relying too much on any kind of explicit narrative, um, and I think it's really impressive. And of course, when you have something like that, I think music becomes more important for establishing mood and atmosphere. And I think the soundtrack for this does an excellent job of that. Yeah, this track has a. Um has kind of an audio quality, like it's being played on an old record or uh, probably more precisely off of an old tape recorder, because this is kind of a, uh, it has kind of like a spy feel to it. And so, you know, they're always taping things and wearing wires and stuff. And so I, I think that's kind of where they were uh, going with this one. But I really like the um, the tone of the song. I, I think the piano you know, there, there are really kind of, of tinny light pianos and then there are really kind of rich, deep, grand pianos. And you can hear even through the, I'm going to say, I don't know the, the right word, but um, kind of the abbreviated audio range um, yeah, kind yeah. of enforced on it by the um, tape recording technology that it's being um, played on. It, it does kind of like cut off the top and bottom of the um, kind of dynamic range of the uh, the sound, but you can still hear the of what's underneath that this is like a big grand piano and um, what I really like about it it reminds me a lot of the song that we've featured on a previous Halloween special I think called uh, Cohen's Masterpiece from Bioshock yeah, um, yeah, yeah. because that one is another wonderful uh, just absolutely mad piano piece and it's interesting because the character who who plays it in the game is supposed to be this kind of insane, I guess everybody in Bioshock is in, insane. So, you know, it kind of goes without saying, but his, his madness is really communicated through the music and the way that you can kind of feel him swaying back and forth as he plays the music and the way that the, the notes kind of step on each other. And there's this, this real kind of um, waxing and waning to the tempo and to the intensity of the music. And um, I, I just really love the real human touch that's added to that particular song. And I, I think this song, while trying to elicit different emotions and different, um, I guess, state of being, uh, does kind of use a lot of the same techniques. And I really like hearing the dynamism of the way that this particular track is played. That is a nice little palate cleanser, a little short track to kind of kick us off into something. But we've got another track on a uh, very kind of opposite end of the spectrum, something that's a little bit more digitized, a little bit longer, and uh, uh, has a different mood to it entirely. Do you want to take us into track number two here? Yes. Um, so this is my selection. Um, the track is called The Requiem of Shield Knight by Jake Kaufman. Uh, so this is from the game Shovel Knight. Um, the reason why I picked this track is because Shovel Knight is, at this point, pretty famous for having a really fantastic kind of 8-bit, 16-bit inspired soundtrack. Mm. And a lot of it kind of reflects the joy and enthusiasm of that era of game design. But one thing that always, you know, stayed with me after playing Shovel Knight is how weirdly emotionally evocative that game was with so little um, to use uh, at its disposal. So there, there are these little segments throughout um, um, Shovel Knight where um, the, uh, the protagonist, Shovel Knight himself, is laying by a campfire. For herself now, even. 
<laughs> oh yeah, the, I mean it's amb ambiguous, isn't it? Or well, they've uh, they've given you the option in recent patches to change the pronouns that people refer to you as. But <laughs> oh sorry, really? I don't mean to, uh, oh, don't I mean had... to step on your. <laughs> no, no. I mean that's useful to know. I had no idea. But um, yeah, yeah, so Shovel Knight, cool Shovel Knight, him or her, um, is uh, lying by the uh, campfire, and um, he he drifts off into sleep, you know, and has a dream about trying to catch uh, Shield Knight and, um, tr you know, fending off enemies um, along the way and just desperately trying to jump towards her and, and catch her. And during these sequences, this, this track plays and it's really, it's so different in terms of kind of pace and tone to the rest of the soundtrack. It's really... Um, kind of melancholic and, and sad, even though it's still, you know, very much inspired from you know by the eight bit, sixteen bit era, and and they use this track at several points in the game to sell a relationship between these two characters that is barely explored. You only have like a surface level understanding of why these two people care about each other, but it's still effective and i remember you know the the last instance which i won't spoil but the last instance of this track playing really caught me off guard and actually ended up making me feel a bit weepy and um yeah i i was really impressed that a game that you know ostensibly is just kind of like a a, a modern mega man kind of ducktales style game could affect me in that way so here is the requiem of Shield Knight by Jake Hoffman.
Trek's fun because we talked in the opening section about uh, the kind of waxing and waning of those two particular piano tracks. And even in this more kind of digitized track, you get a lot of variance in the volume. And it's not that it, uh, not that it gets really punchy at times and then really quiet at times, like a lot of uh, classical music, but it smoothly kind of waves between real loud and real quiet stuff in a way that feels kind of unnatural for NES style composition. We're going to uh, another track here. This one is actually, I was, <laughs> I was particularly amused, you know, at the end of every um, sound of play, we always tell you where you can contact us. You can get in contact with us on our forum at canonments.com slash forum. You can get in contact with us on Twitter or Facebook. I think we have a Google plus that's still active. You can email us. There's any number of ways uh, to request a track, but this one, I was um, struck with the ingenuity of, and I had to <laughs> include it in the next issue. I got a message on my uh, personal account on PSN, and Colin Sundin was very nice to type out his entire request and a little description of the track and send it via PSN. So um, that's a little hint to everyone else. If you want your track played on the next show, find a really inventive way to get to us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just makes it stand out. It's also a really good track. And so, you know, if uh, I was eager to feature it already. <laughs> Collins says about this track, I love the way the flow of the music both mimics the unpredictable pacing of the boss fight while also having moments of hauntingly somber tones and vocals. The eerily slow parts almost made me play differently because of the contrast of what you expect from a boss battle theme to reflect the way it fights. This kind of a dancerly flow is something that we just can't stop talking about on this particular sound of play. I don't know why it's coming up so much, but yeah, this, this particular track is from Dark Souls 3. This is Dancer of the Boreal Valley by Yuka Kitamura. And uh, this is probably one of the more memorable boss encounters in the game. I remember it being in the early PAX demo and a lot of the pre-release materials that were um, being circulated before Dark Souls 3. Um, Josh, did you try to stay spoiler-free going into Dark Souls 3, or were you familiar with the dancer beforehand? I, I was, because she was very prominent in a lot of the marketing material. Um, her and the her uh, other Boreal companion, um, I've forgotten the name of him. But Vort? Yeah, the Vort. Dog person? Yes, yeah, yeah, who's uh, right next door to her, as it happens. Mm -hmm. um, those two kind of Not feature... in the progression of the game, necessarily. Not in, no, no <laughs> only if you really want a stiff challenge, are they right next to each other. But yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, even still, um, I, she ended. She ended up being a real highlight. Um, part of that is, you know, this track, but part of it is also how the visuals kind of really like mm -hmm. uh, something. I I apologize that the, you know the listeners have probably heard me say this about a thousand times, but something that really <laughs> works for me is when visuals and sound are really in sync with each other, and it feels like the art you directors. You can say animation; it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> the art directors and animation uh -huh. uh, uh, feel like they're reflecting each other's work and the way this this uh this creature animates mm. is so unusual and so 
Like, it, it, this could have been, you know, your standard Dark Souls duel fight where it's just mm-hmm. a warrior and you square off. But because of the way she moves, it, it, it makes it feel alien, unusual. And the music reflects that in such a, an effective way. And to be, I mean, to be frank, I, I think Dark Souls 3 probably has the weakest soundtrack overall uh, for, of the uh, Souls series. I'm including Bloodborne mm. and Demon Souls in that. But this track in particular stands out as a, as a real success. You know, I tend to prefer, uh, I mean, Bloodborne is kind of by far my favorite soundtrack of the series. And I think a lot of that is because I really like when the music is more kind of pared down to individual instruments and individual voices. Whereas a lot of the tracks from Dark Souls 1 and Dark Souls 2, although the compositions were really kind of complex and interesting, they also sounded a bit cacophonous just because there was so much happening at every time and so you know dark souls 3 did was a little bit more in that direction a little bit more kind of that grand high fantasy huge choirs and everything than bloodborne was which was meant to be more kind of an intimate uh, horror experience Um, but i I think it did still maintain a lot of the restraint that the bloodborne music um, kind of adapted for itself and so I I like the Dark Souls 3 soundtrack a lot. Again, it still kind of falls short of Bloodborne for me, but that's just kind of personal genre tastes. But yeah, this this fight in particular is really interesting because, you know, of course, the visual design, as you mentioned, she has these neat kind of sheer streamers kind of falling off the... That's not really the right word for it. I don't know what it would be. Kind of like scarves. Yeah, at, yeah. A trail behind yeah. her and, and just kind of make a really interesting tail behind her movement, which... um. You know, it's a very pretty effect and, you know, I'm not going to spoil every aspect of the fight, but the arena does change in a pretty dramatic way throughout the fight, uh, which is always something that I don't feel like the uh, Dark Souls series takes advantage of quite as much as it should, because whenever it does, it's always just like really stunning and it uh, adds to the sense of um, progression to the um, to the fight that you're in. And so, you know, it's it's exciting, it's interesting, and it's hard to read because she fights in a very logical, readable way, but it's not the way that you've been trained to read the enemies in Dark Souls. You know, especially Dark Souls 3, where the uh, attacks come at you so much faster. Uh, she's very slow, very deliberate. Um, she does have her moments where she can move quickly, but a lot of her attacks are wide and arcing and a little slower than you would expect based on what you've been trained to expect over the the past however many hours it took you to get to that point. As I was just mentioning to Josh before we started recording, I've been going through Dark Souls 3 again, uh, this time on the PC, and it's uh, just really wonderful, really magnificent game. I love that game so much and uh, I'm happy to feature some more music from Dark Souls 3. This is a request from Colin Sundin. This is Dancer of the Boreal Valley.
Souls 3 has an aspect of the end of the world, as does the entire Souls series. And, um, well, from what I have come to understand about this one, this is one that I have not had the opportunity yet, but I am just absolutely dying to give it a try because it is uh, like an almost unfair mixture of all of my favorite things that seems to be targeting me specifically, but, you know, just, uh, just, just waiting on the price to come down a little bit more. But, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Nier Automata and this, uh, particular track that you want to play? Yes. So, um, in a year of really great games, um, Nier Automata has kind of come out, uh, out of nowhere as almost, uh, uh, black horse, uh, you know, dark horse candidate for game of the year for a lot of people. Um, those those who are familiar with Nier probably were thinking, yeah, of course this is going to be great. But <laughs> for for me who who doesn't have experience with um, the original Nier, this was a real surprise. And and I haven't completed this game yet. I, I'm definitely going to. Um, I, I, well, I say I haven't completed it. I've completed the first ending, but anyone who's <laughs> played this game knows yeah. that that's not really completing it. Um, but the thing that strikes you straight away with this game is just how strong the soundtrack is like it right from the word go it hits you with some almost instantly iconic music and and it mm. doesn't stop like the whole game is filled with great music but it's not just the the quality it's it's the way the game uses music to enhance the messages it's trying to get across and there are instances where they use uh, a combination of diegetic and non-diegetic sound and music together um, to create um, these moments, uh, particularly in boss battles, of feeling like the 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 like just the thematic tone of the non-diegetic music is reflecting the kind of soundscape that's happening in the moment that the characters are actually hearing. Um, so the track that I've brought to the table from um, Nier Automata is Birth of a Wish, specifically the This Cannot Continue variant. Um, and this was composed by Kaichi Okabe. Uh, uh, apologies if I've got that pronunciation wrong. But um, what's great about this is this is the first instance of this particular track. It's repeated several times with slight variations, but this is the first instance that you hear this track. And um, I'm going to be like, I don't want to talk too much uh, in the details uh, of this moment because I, I, I do think it's important that people experience this for themselves with as, uh, uh, with as little story information as possible. But to give you a vague idea of what's happening, the the robot enemies um, that you encounter throughout the game start chanting, this cannot continue, this cannot continue, this cannot continue, and it increases in speed, and eventually it stops becoming a chant and actually starts becoming a part of the mm. music of that scene. <laughs> Something happens in the scene that I don't want to ruin during this kind of music. And it's really significant to the plot, but part of the, you know, part of the reason why this track sticks out is that moment when it happens. But mm. apart from that, like, 
it's such an interesting mix of having these awkward robot noises like continuing the same phrase over and over again that's thematically important to the scene that's happening in front of you while also having this kind of you know traditional kind of orchestral um you know latin choir in the background um it's just so impressive. Um, mm. It's great to listen to, but I think this is a, a, one of those cases where you have to experience it in the moment. So if you listen to this and you think, wow, this soundtrack, this sounds amazing, go play near Automata <laughs> because um, it's even more impressive in the moment. So this is Birth of a Wish, This Cannot Continue variant by Kaichi Okabe.
That's interesting, um, particularly as a collaboration between two different studios, you know, near uh, coming from um, one of uh, Square Enix's teams, the team that had previously worked on the Drakengard series, and then a lot of the gameplay kind of married to the traditional um, Platinum Games style, who, was, who came in to partner with Yoko Taro's team to create this this particular game. And it's it's so rare that a collaboration works as well as it seems to here. This is coming from me not having the chance to play it yet, but I've uh, divin- uh, dove dove in. I I have divin in. No, I have dived into. Oh goodness, <laughs> what a terrible word. Um, <laughs> I, I I have explored. A lot of the pre-release materials and um, pretty much as much as I felt like I could get away with it without spoiling the story for myself, just because I'm so eager to try it out. And so I, I kind of have like a rough sense of how the game looks and plays and sounds and everything. And the uh, soundtrack in particular was was one of the real highlights of the first near game. And it's just so cool to see this collaboration between two studios, these two kind of teams meeting minds and genuinely carrying over the best of each because you don't always get that with um with collaborations you know i've also been playing uh project cross zone on the 3ds which i've really been enjoying it's kind of like a like a turn your brain off fire emblem with a whole bunch of characters from like capcom and sega and a bunch of japanese games that i've never really even heard of before but in that case like there are so many teams that have at least contributed to this game that uh you know you can kind of get a sense that nobody is playing to their strengths and you know there there are systems in there where it's like oh you know capcom has done this better in the past why couldn't we have let capcom do this particular part or you know whoever is sega has done this really well in the past why can't we let them take the soundtrack or whatever and um you know it, it it's still a good game i'm still really enjoying it i uh play that game much more than i realistically should but uh <laughs> but you know it, it just it doesn't feel as satisfying a collaboration as something like near automata does yeah i mean th- there's a real sense of you know, there's no egos with, mm. with anyone in the team. There's a real sense of everyone understanding what their strengths are within that unit, mm, yeah. within that team, and just focusing on that part and making sure that they get their part really well, you know, really, uh, really down. Um, you know, Platinum have not historically been uh, – famous for their storytelling in video games <laughs> and Yokotaro and his team have not historically been uh, famous for their really you know slick and polished you know mechanical mm, yep. systems and it really feels like this is kind of a, a match made in heaven like the the mm-hmm. the two are kind of um bringing their you know their their skill set uh, and helping out the other team so that they you know, they bolster each other, that they're enhancing each other's work by partnering up. It's, it's as you say, it's really rare to see that happen. But when it does, it's it's really special. 
I was kind of sad to see Yokotaro um, say that he was going to be leaving Platinum after this one collaboration because he does seem like such a good fit for that studio. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it kind of reminded me of uh, when Ron Gilbert said that he was going to be leaving Double Fine after working on uh, Broken Age in the Cave, uh, which is like, come on, you guys, you know, you and Tim made all the best adventure games back yeah. in the old days. Like, why can't you just like, continue to work together? But then he went on to make um, uh, Thimbleweed Park and, um, you know, he's, he's off doing his own thing. Uh, Tim Schafer and his studio are off doing their own thing. And, and uh, you know, I, I always have the feeling as well that these announcements or these, um, these departures aren't as final as they sound on paper. You know, it's yeah. kind of like whenever Swery65 says that he's going to be leaving the games industry, it's like, no, nah, you'll be back in a couple of months. <laughs> you know, you're closing your studio, but you're going to open a, an identical studio and hire all the same people in just a couple of months anyways. So it's going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, we'll just, we'll just have to see how things pan out. But I, I really like that, <laughs> that those teams ended up getting together. Oh, let's move on to a, another game with a really, um, really kind of dark and interesting tone. Uh, this is one that I have been uh, kind of championing for years. It's one that I've been kind of begging everyone to <laughs> to play. Uh, I've really been trying to get Leon to uh, to play this one, but he's he's very particular about you know he likes his games to be finished before he uh, he plays them, which is fine. But um, you know this game has been in development for uh, like like four years or something at this point. And so it's one of those where I feel like you could just play what happened or play what is play what exists right now and uh, catch catch up with the rest as it continues to come out if it does. Uh, but anyways, this next track is from Kentucky Route Zero. Um, this particular one is from Act Three, which came out in 2014, and this is a request from the forum from Third Man, who says uh, this track is "Too Late to Love You" from Kentucky Route Zero Act Three. It has shades of Karen Anderson's Fever Ray project, but it's a beautiful song in its own right. Fans of the Kentucky series will have cherished memories of this particular scene and track. Being able to select the lyrics in real time only adds to the sheer oddness of the moment. Sumptuous, weird, magical. Nice little three-word review at the end there. <laughs> yeah, I guess to contextualize this particular scene, you meet a couple of, I don't want to call them drifters. They're, they're like, a, they're a traveling band, but it seems like they don't really have a permanent home. Uh, just kind of one of those uh, anywhere I hang my hat is home type, uh, type bands. Um, it's a man and a woman. And, you know, you don't really get a great sense throughout the game, whether they're entirely trustworthy or not, which is uh, adds a fun little layer to it, because everything in Kentucky Route Zero has to maintain some level of menace and mysteriousness. But you end up accompanying them to a gig that they have to play at a bar. And nobody else is at this bar because this world appears to be inhabited by almost no one it's one of those games where it's kind of empty, mysterious. It always feels like you are having your adventure in like two in the morning where it's like, of course, there's nobody on the road because every sensible person is asleep. But, you know, so much happens that you know, obviously like it would have been morning by now if this was all in real time. But it's just that kind of perpetual state of the world should be asleep right now. <laughs> yeah. This particular track is played at a bar. It's a live performance by this band. And 
it gives you the opportunity to pick some of the lyrics as they come up. Uh, this particular version is a version that is played in game. And so I don't know exactly how they end up doing it. It reminds me a lot actually of the, uh, the song that you have to kind of write through dialogue selections for the secret of monkey Island three. But uh, in, in this case, you know, you pick lines that don't really seem to be all that closely related because the entire script of the entire game is written in a very poetic way. And so, you know, it's all very mysterious. It's all very interpretive. It's a really neat scene. And I really love the sound of the song as well for a game that takes a lot of its inspiration from David Lynch's work in particular. You know, this reminds me a lot of the type of, uh, of music that you would hear in one of his movies or in Twin Peaks or something. Uh, it has a really cool 80s style synth droning notes in the background. And I know it, it's very emotional. It very, it really kind of pulls at the heartstrings a little bit in the way that it's composed and played. I mean, speaking for myself, um, I, I haven't actually, uh, uh, played Kentucky Route Zero, mm-hmm. not properly at least. Uh, I've played a bit of the first act. And I have to say, watching this um, kind of lit a fire <laughs> under me and um, <laughs> and because I this is exactly the kind of moment that I really love in, in, mm-hmm. in this style of game. And knowing that this kind of, um, you know, interactivity and, and this kind of use of music is waiting for me in act three um has really motive, motivated me to c- come on josh don't wait until the <laughs> till the next uh, act comes out you've got to mm. you've got to get this this game played because yeah it's just really just uh, i mean it, it's doing a lot with a little visually like um you know the characters don't have you know faces really and mm-hmm. um uh, the lighting is very simple and the color scheme is very simple but they're really well chosen the you know the the way they've lit, lit it and the way they've chosen to use those limited colors creates like a very uh, evocative image and the like i i love the concept and i know this isn't you know this isn't an original idea but I love the concept of kind of constructing a song on the fly mm. and the fact that it happens to be a great song as well. You know, that's <laughs> that's uh, cherry on the cake as far as I'm concerned. I would encourage anybody who listens to the song and really like it to seek out a video of it on YouTube if they haven't already played the game because, you know, the, the visual element does, you know, this entire game, it's one of those every frame of painting type of uh, experiences where, like every element of this game ends up working together to really kind of create a series of experiences rather than the, you know, the, the overall narrative uh, takes a backseat to the moment to moment experiences that you have throughout the game. And I would say that this scene is entirely representative of pretty much every other scene in the game. You know, they're not all musical naturally, but they all are hypnotizing. I think is a good word to use. It's like, you know, I always like to play Kentucky Route Zero after having like one glass of wine. So you're just like a little bit buzzed. You put on the headphones, you turn down the lights and there's always some sort of like static noise or, you know, the sounds of crickets in the background and the characters are speaking at you and are very kind of like using common language, but in a very uncommon way that makes it very mysterious and very David Lynchy. The only way that I can 
really understand what it does to my brain is it's like intellectual ASMR. It's like poetic ASMR, where it's just like it gives you those tingling feelings just because of like all of the ideas and all of the things that are on display at any given moment in the game. And it's just, it's really, it's really special for me. I immensely enjoy pretty much every scene in the entire series. And so, uh, yeah, this is a hearty recommendation and a big thanks from, uh, to third man from the forum for requesting this track because it wasn't one that I had on my list, but I <laughs> am realizing that I have uh, been grossly negligent <laughs> to not request this sooner. So uh, this is Too Late to Love You. And this is composed by Ben Babbitt. Uh, we don't know who sang the uh, the vocal part, but um, credit should probably be given there as well. And um, this is from Kentucky Route Zero, Act 3.
Alright, moving on to, oddly enough, I did not plan this intentionally, but another weird, strangely discordant song that plays inside of a CD bar, <laughs> inside of a game. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this is a this is a track that's been a favorite of mine ever since I played the game originally back in like high school or something. Um, I remember back when I used to drive to work every day. I mean, I do now again, but back when I was in high school, driving to work at the Cold Stone Creamery ice cream shop in Issaquah, Washington, I had a playlist on my iPod of like all of my favorite songs that I used to like to listen to. And this was like number one on the list. And so I listened to this song like, almost every day. And I don't know, there's just something really kind of intriguing about it. It has a steady pace. It's got a real nice violin leading instrument. Uh, it has vocals, which are uh, written in another language, which I don't understand. And I can't even really identify the language. I, Do you know? <laughs> I, I think I'm not entirely sure, but I think it probably has its origins in French rap. Um, okay. So it, could, yeah. it does sound similar. It's a I, French I studio and written yeah. by a French composer. So uh, yeah, it, it would make sense. I'm I, I I'm not picking out any particular French words, but just kind mm -hmm. of the the way that it sounds. It, it might well be a made up language, or it is actually French, and our French listeners are screaming at us. <laughs> but um, well, they won't it, be screaming at it, us yet because they don't even know what it is just yet. <laughs> but um, but the the kind of style um, reminds me a lot of uh, of French rap music and hip hop. Mm. Yeah, I really like. There's a lot of a lot of texture in this song. There's a lot of different instruments that are um, that you wouldn't normally hear together anyways enough dancing around it this is from beyond good and evil this is called propaganda composed by christoph Hiral, and this plays in one of the bars in the game uh, i think you can play it on a jukebox um if i remember correctly it's been a while since i've played beyond good and evil but yeah just something about the intensity a kind of darkness of the track, the mysterious playfulness of the way that it's composed, and the uh, the B section sounds a lot like the the haunting Torgo theme from Manos, The Hands of Fate, which Mystery Science Theater fans will be familiar with. I'm sure that is entirely coincidence, but it's a fun little uh, thing to listen for. <laughs> or maybe it'll ruin it for you, who knows. Um, Josh, have you ever played Beyond Good and Evil before? Yes, I have, and and yeah, this track definitely stands out. I remember this being a real um, earworm for me, mm. um, just stepping away from the game and just humming this as I'm doing the dishes or something like that. <laughs> it's good. It's real good motivational music. If you if you've got a really boring chore that you have to do, pop this on, and suddenly you feel like the coolest man in the world, um, <laughs> trying to trying to get it done. And yeah, I just. Um, it, because so much of the the rest of the music it's another case of a track kind of standing out because the rest of the soundtrack takes a very different you know tone and approach mm -hmm. and this this comes out of nowhere as something that ref definitely absolutely kind of reflects the culture of the location that you're in and mm. reflects kind of the seediness and slight danger of the kind of underground area that you're at. But yeah, it's just really memorable and hard to get out of your head once it's in there. <laughs> yeah, I'm couching this in the middle of the 
uh, of the middle of a sound of play so that hopefully some of these later tracks will help kind of, you know, not, not flush it from people's memories, but it won't be stuck in their head all day long. Like if we'd put it right at the end, (laughs) because yes, this is an earworm as you would have said. Um, but anyways, this is propaganda by Christopher Rall from beyond good and evil. Another request from the forum. This comes from Ashman86, who says, For my 11th birthday, my parents gifted me a copy of Lords of Magic, a hybrid strategy game that combined a turn-based, almost 4X strategy game with real-time with pause combat. The idea behind the game was to combine Lords of the Realm with Heroes of Might and Magic. And while the result was a unique experience that offered a lot of fun, but largely fell short of its immense um, promise, Lords of Magic continues to hold a special place in my heart. At the time, I didn't have a PC capable of running the game. My parents had checked the minimum requirements, but they hadn't understood at the time that our home computer lacked an SVGA graphics card. My aunt, who lived only a block away from us at the time, had only recently purchased a new computer from which she could work from her home and she invited me to play at her house whenever I wanted. I took full advantage of the offer and spent countless afternoons at her house for the next few months. I was grateful at the time to be able to play my new game. I'm grateful now in retrospect to have had time with my aunt, 
who would go on to encourage me and support me throughout my life. The theme for the Order Civilization, one of the eight playable factions, remains one of my favorite pieces of game music to this day. Keith Zizza's music is quintessentially fantasy, and the medieval-style guitar still manages to tug at my heart now the way that it did 20 years ago. I, I always really like to hear these songs from, um, I think in particular, like old PC games that people grew up with, because there's a certain amount of there's a way that like PC games can feel special to somebody's life that console games, because they are um, kind of more heavily marketed and there are fewer choices on a console than there are on PC. And so, you know, if a major console release happens, it's kind of like everybody knows about it and everybody has played it or tried it or is, you know, somehow um, kind of tangentially aware. Whereas PC games, and even today with kind of like weird little indie stuff that you would find on itch.io or something, or like there's a possibility that you were the only one in your circle of friends that knew about it and played it. And, uh, and so, yeah, there's a little sense of these kind of personal memories and everybody has these, these great stories about, um, you know, what it was like to in, in, uh, Ashman's case, hunt down the appropriate computer to play this game, uh, in his childhood. So yeah, I, I love these types of stories and the song itself is very, um, kind of warm. It's very inviting. It's very nice. It's a, it's a lovely track. I've not played the game myself, so I don't have any particular history with it, but I'm glad it was uh, requested. This is Order by Keith Zizza from Lords of Magic.
Okay, going on to a PC game, which, um, you know, though it was an early indie PC game, I'm pretty sure that everyone has either played this or is immediately aware of it because it was a uh, i it came right at the very beginning of the great kind of indie wave you know this and um cave story and braid really kind of led the way for a lot of um a lot of what we're seeing now and you know in, in many ways this was one of the maybe like handful of games that kind of turned the industry into the indie led industry that it is today um you know it might be kind of overstating its importance but it does feel like it has a, a really kind of strong respectable place in the um, history of how the kind of indie generation ended up going uh, this is from a game that i hate to talk about on air because it is called vvv vvv well done so whatever um or uh, I, I think the way that it is uh, referred to in polite conversation <laughs> is just V's. So, you know, whatever. This is from Terry Cavanaugh, who is a uh, kind of a pioneer of early indie games. And this came out on every platform imaginable over the years. And they're still re-releasing it the, today. You know, I think I was just reading recently that it's coming to yet another platform and I'm sure we'll get a switch port before too long. You know, it's just bound for everything because it's a very simple game. It's a very kind of minimal, uh, what is the minimal mechanics to it? Um, it, It's very immediately understandable in a way that all the best indie games are. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a really wonderful uh, little kind of experimental title. Um, it's not the first one to use these style of mechanics, which involve, uh, it's kind of like 3d platforming, except instead of jumping, you're able to invert gravity. I think just for you, I don't think it affects any of the environmental objects, but I could be wrong about that. Um, but I'm pretty sure it's just you kind of flipping up to the ceiling and then flipping back down to the floor, a real tricky game made of, uh, usually a lot of single screen puzzles. It's a nice little game and it was complemented wonderfully by, a soundtrack that was um, a real standout and a real kind of famous soundtrack these days as well um, because it's uh, just that high quality and playing this game was that ubiquitous that it is kind of caught on in the broader um, gaming culture uh, composed by Soul Eye who is a an uh, independent musician who uh, has put out some independent chiptune music himself uh, although, you know, he is, I think even to this day, he still is probably most proud of this particular soundtrack. It's a real wonderful um, piece of work there. Uh, the tracks that I'm going to play are two tracks that play the same theme. And so I thought it would be kind of logical to uh, stack them back to back to kind of catch the progression of the songs. This is Pushing Onwards and Positive Force. Uh, these are probably really obvious choices, but they haven't been chosen for sound of play in the past, and I'd feel negligent for not bringing them to the show at some point. Um, but in case you haven't heard them, <laughs> uh, they are really high energy. They have a really catchy tune, although um, you know it's it it does continually kind of morph and move on throughout the track. It doesn't overly rely on the catchy main um, main line. Uh, throughout the throughout the tracks pushing onwards and positive force are essentially the same track but positive force has a lot more kind of embellishment on it uh, there's a lot more happening in that song and it's uh, a little bit more kind of high energy 
And so just kind of think of it as a progression. They'll be back to back anyways. So you'll kind of hear it in that way as it kind of continually builds. Uh, but one fun little factoid, you know, Leon is always telling us that uh, we can't pick any songs from rock band or guitar hero or anything like that. But, uh, you know, this particular song was featured in a rock band on the rock <laughs> really? band network. Wow. So yeah, uh, <laughs> there were three, three tracks from V's that was uh, put on the rock band network for its short little lifespan on rock band three only, I believe along with a, a lot of other favorites, like the song from that fictional band from lost and, uh, and Brody quest from, uh, Neil Sasierga, uh, his, his band lemon demon. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of oddities on that channel. And, uh, among them was, uh, just a few tracks from this game. And I just, I, I have a lot of fun memories of playing this track on guitar and, um, you know, rock bands are really wonderful way to listen to music as well, because it really forces you to hear each individual instrument and kind of pay attention to what that individual instrument's doing at that time. And uh, this track benefits greatly from that because there is so much happening um, at every given time. And there's there's so many layers to the music. It's exciting. It's high energy. Uh, Josh, are you a, a player of V's? I never managed to finish it, unfortunately, um, mm. for whatever reason. It's challenging. <laughs> it is a bit challenging. Um, the, the, I remember 2010 being quite an interesting year for 2D platformers. Um, Super Meat Boy and uh, Limbo came out the same year, I believe. Uh, and this was kind of like the third pillar, as it were, of that trifecta of uh, platformers and that everyone was talking about. About. And yeah, I, I, I think what I really like about the soundtrack and, and not just the soundtrack, but the visuals, but, you know, sh we had sh we heard from uh, Shovel Knight earlier, and that's a game that's very much steeped in the 8-bit, 16-bit era and trying to kind of evoke that same feeling. Whereas VVV kind of feels like it's taking inspiration from that era, but kind of going off in its own kind of different direction. It's not necessarily nostalgic. It's more kind of taking influence and ideas and, mm -hmm. and adding a modern um, alternative surrealist spin to some of it. And um, the, the result is a, a soundtrack that you know, it's a chiptune soundtrack, but it doesn't sound like any other uh, yeah, exactly. soundtrack you'd, you'd find out there these days. It feels a lot more complex than a lot of the stuff you were getting on those earlier systems. Uh, this particular game wasn't really, it, it has a very, uh, I, I want to call it an 8-bit style, but I always get really self-conscious whenever I refer to anything by a number of bits because... You know, it doesn't look like an NES game. It almost looks more like an Atari 2600 game. Like it's, it's, it's color schemes are very simple. It's characters are very blocky. It's, um, you know, it, I, I think it's trying to reach further back than the NES, which is usually the kind of go-to point for a lot of these, uh, kind of retro nostalgic platformers. But, um, yeah, it, it, it's not something that is immediately identifiable with any one point in history. It makes an impression because of that. It just kind of exists as its own thing without being a throwback to any other, you know, it doesn't exist relative to anything else. Um, so yeah, it's, I guess we've talked around the track a lot. Um, let's just go ahead and listen to Pushing Onwards and Positive Force by Solai. <laughs> 
we have one track left today, but before we do that, I want to remind everyone that they can venture over to our forum at canonrinse.com slash forum. I am remembering that I have already mentioned all of this earlier in the show, but uh, you know, you've heard all the wonderful contributions today. Hopefully that, that will inspire you to also pitch us some of your favorites. And as we mentioned earlier, <laughs> if you can find weird ways to get the tracks to us, they uh, they stand out that much more. <laughs> um, you can request anything from uh, the video games past. Obviously, other than uh, licensed tracks and stuff, we don't tend to uh, to feature those just due to the fact that we're already kind of skirting the edges of legality as it is. <laughs> um, we don't want to invite that kind of... Uh, uh, and also just because, you know, we want to celebrate video game music and music that was made to complement the medium, not necessarily something that somebody just kind of picked out of the uh, already existing cultural ether and uh, plopped into the game. Although there's a certain amount of uh, of cool conversation to be had for soundtrack curation. Uh, you heard a lot about that on um, last week's show that uh, Leon did with uh, with Kenny Young from the Little Big Planet series who curate, curate, mm, who curated <laughs> a wonderful soundtrack for, for those games. I mean, composed quite a bit of it as well, but also a lot of licensed music that really went into making the game what it is. Um, but yes, as, as far as the, uh, purposes that we want to serve, um, uh, just game, um, just music that is composed for the game specifically, please do subscribe to sound of play and leave us an iTunes review or rating that does help our visibility as we, uh, kind of hop all over the place in these weird, unpredictable iTunes charts that probably don't even work, but, uh, you know, whatever gets us in people's ears, we, we, we work with the system that we have, <laughs> Um, we also have a, another podcast called Canon Rinse that is kind of our uh, main endeavor, so to speak. Uh, it is uh, two-hour-long discussions about video games uh, where we discuss an individual video game or sometimes a series in depth in those two hours. Uh, I am no longer on mic there, so if uh, if that is an encouragement to get over there... <laughs> Uh, then uh, you know let that let that help it's a it's a wonderful show i always enjoy listening to it and um yeah it's just a a a wonderful time every week every monday now when that comes out um i would like to thank josh for uh contributing to this show josh has been wonderful to hang out with you once again which we don't get to do as often anymore yes it's been a pleasure thank you again as well as our uh, many community contributors uh, please keep the requests coming. We do very much enjoy your music, even for our own personal listening. Uh, this last track is a uh, yeah, kind of a nice uh, somber tone to to end out on, to kind of mellow us, mellow us out after a real um, kind of emotionally charged episode here. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I thought you know. Usually we end, um, uh, you know, sound of play on a more optimistic kind of note. So I thought, hey, let's buck a trend and uh, go for something a bit more um, <laughs> sad and, and melancholic. So um, this is this track is called "Life's End" by Harry Gregson Williams, and it's from the game Metal Gear Solid Three: Snake Eater or Subsistence, depending on which version of that game mm. you played. Um, so, I mean, I've said multiple times, you know, Metal Gear Solid 3 is my favorite in that series and 
probably ranks highly among my favorite games of all time. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that, but uh, the soundtrack is one of those reasons. Um, mm. I think it's Harry Gregson Williams kind of at his peak um, with this particular game. Um, there, there are loads of great track tracks to pick from. Some have have already featured on uh, on Sound of Play, but this particular track um, plays during a moment that I think gets a lot of people emotionally swept up. Um, it's uh, again, I don't want to go into specifics because this is right at the end of the game, and um, if you haven't played it, I think you know you you don't want to have this moment spoiled for you. But it's a it's a fanta- it, it kind of plays just before a moment where um, Kojima and his team kind of successfully uh, combine interactivity with an emotionally narratively important moment. Mm. Um, just uh, one but- button push. Who knew one button push would uh, <laughs> would carry so much weight? Uh, and yet it does. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I just I love the kind of subtlety of this track. Of like, you know, Metal Gear Solid is not a subtle series. You know, it's very <laughs> over the top and and um, and uh, you know wild and 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 in and uh, eccentric. And um, it's kind of it's great to have it just kind of calm down for a moment and quiet down for a moment and just have that little bit of the Metal Gear Solid theme play towards the end of this track as well, just kind of coming in there and it's 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 really effective and and it, it gets me a little bit weepy when I listen to it in the right <laughs> mood. It's. Uh, it's a fantastic track. It's very short, but it's very sweet, and, and I love it. Let's listen to Life's End by Harry Gregson Williams from Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>